The Mind International Forum will be held in Sydney on the 23rd and 24th of March 2019. To find out more and to register for this premier event, please go to forum.mindd.org. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Dr. Elizabeth Mumper, who is President and CEO of the Rimland Centre. Her general paediatrics practice is Advocates for Children. Advocates for Families is her practice devoted to the care of children with autism and other neurodevelopmental problems. Dr. Mumper graduated magna cum laude from Bridgewater College with a degree in general science. She attended the Medical College of Virginia and was invited to serve as chief resident of paediatrics at the University of Virginia. She spent five years in practice at F. Reed Hopkins Paediatrics, over a decade as director of paediatric education at the Lynchburg Family Practice Residency Program, maintained a clinical faculty appointment at the University of Virginia for 16 years, and served as medical director for the Autism Research Institute for five years. Dr. Mumper has conducted clinical research at the Rimland Centre and published five peer-reviewed articles in the medical literature. Dr. Mumper is also a scientific advisory board member of the MIND Foundation, a not-for-profit organisation helping those with conditions which often affect the mind, so all profits go back to more support and education for families. Welcome to FX Medicine, Dr. Elizabeth Mumper, how are you? I am doing great, Andrew, and I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to talk with you all today. Thank you, and I've got to say, it's our honour for your dedication to the kids and the families um, who suffer from neurodevelopmental problems. So thank you for spending your time with us. Can I just go back into your past? And um, you've received numerous awards, one of which was Woman of the Year. Tell us about that. So um, that award was for Central Virginia. So I wasn't Woman of the Year for the world, (laughs) (laughs) but... Um, It was in recognition of uh, my work in Virginia. I um, was involved in a bicycle helmet campaign many years ago. Mm. I was a teacher who was highly ranked at the residency program where I taught, and I was doing a lot of work in the community with um, domestic violence and child abuse at Mm. that time. So I got that award just as I was getting sucked into the autism epidemic. And so it reflected some of my community work um, pre-autism, pre-neurodevelopmental issues. And uh, before I had the opportunity to travel widely to talk about the medical problems of children with autism. Yeah. And you've also done research and, and written book chapters in medical texts. Tell us a little bit about that, because I think this, again, is prior to your interest in autism. Is that right? Yeah, that is uh, correct. And so um, I wrote a couple of book chapters that actually were quite relevant for my work with autism. One was actually on child development, and the other was on immunology. 
And as we'll talk about today, um, the immune system is often very uh, dysregulated in children with autism, and that was one of the first things I started noticing clinically Mm -hmm. in my practice. Um, In children that had neurodevelopmental problems, they often seem to have food allergies and uh, allergic rhinitis and asthma and uh, chronic infections. So perhaps what I researched doing those two book chapters helped along the way. Um, to recognize these patterns that I hope clinicians will really start focusing on and looking for uh, in this generation of children. Well, today we're going to be discussing healing cycles and the cell danger response, which you and Dr. Robert Navio will be discussing at the 2019 Mind Forum uh, in Sydney. Let's first go into that. What is a cell danger response? Yeah, this is really elegant research that Dr. Navio has done, and I uh, am really hopeful that he'll get a Nobel Prize for it one day because I think it's that much of a game changer. Wow. So it's really quite interesting. Um, The uh, mitochondria, as you and your audience may know, are like the powerhouses of the cell, or Mm. they're sometimes described as the battery of the cell. Yeah. And so they're crucial for all kinds of function, and they're found in every cell in the body except in red blood cells. And through a very intricate set of reactions, we take the food we eat and convert it into something called pyruvate, which is then shuttled into the mitochondria, and then it goes through a five-step process where uh, through complex one, two, three, four, and five, various cofactors are added such that we ultimately produce something called ATP, which is the energy currency of the cell, basically. Yeah. And so in order for us to do any work biochemically or to contract our muscles or to beat our hearts or to think with our brains, we have to have these mitochondria functioning well. So sadly, lots of different things can actually affect how well the mitochondrial, uh, the mitochondria function. Mm. So for example, various viruses or other infections can impair this process. We know that heavy metals and environmental toxins can impair the process. Um, even minor things like the cell's a little too salty or not quite salty enough, or the pH, the acid-base level, is a little too acid or a little too basic. All those things can affect the mitochondria, and we know now that even psychological traumas and uh, traumatic situations that might lead to PTSD have a profound effect on the mitochondria. So what happens is that when the mitochondria get the idea that there's something threatening that's hurting them, uh, they go through a series of processes to sort of um, wall off the castle, so to speak, and protect themselves. But they also send out these chemical messages that tell the surrounding cells that there's danger. So um, some of these things are like... um, stiffening up the membranes of the mitochondria so that hopefully whatever's trying to get in won't be able to penetrate or they will release certain chemicals into the surrounding space that 
will try to kill whatever the infection might be. Hmm. And interestingly, they also have effects on our behavior because as a part of the self-danger response, um, nature wants us to sort of rest and try to heal. And so it will make you want to sleep more and it'll make you want to get away from your friends and family because, you know, you want to try to not infect the whole tribe, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. And Dr. Navio has done the seminal work on this for many years, and it has led him to write a bunch of elegant papers about first the cellular defense of the mitochondria, but now he's taken it even a more magnificent step forward to talk about the uh, healing cycle of the cell. And this is where I think it's really exciting. Um, he's looked at over a hundred conditions that are associated with this cell danger response um, and looking at how utilizing uh, the healing cycle, we might be able to intervene and uh, treat those conditions. So one of the old models of medicine is get a person's symptom, try to figure out the uh, one thing that they have, the one disease, yep. name the disease, and then give a drug to treat the disease. <laughs> yep. This is a totally different mindset. This is like lots of different um, impairments or nutrient deficiencies or traumas or infections or toxin exposures can lead us to express our cell danger in many different ways. And perhaps, and I believe this to be true, we can actually do more healing if we look at the commonalities and the fundamentals and realize that if we can intervene to help nature heal, um, we wouldn't need all the medications. So nature has a very strong impulse toward healing. And a lot of times what we need to do is get out of the way. So it, it raises a bunch of interesting questions about what we're doing to our environment because what we do to our environment, we ultimately do to our bodies. Mm. And uh, our bodies are trying very hard to adapt to the new normal where, um, you know, food is processed and comes in packages instead of being picked off the trees or grown in the ground. And um, we have so much air pollution and um, people are just exposed to so many um, chemicals that we were never really created or evolved to handle. Mm. So we have to figure out a way to let nature do her thing. And a simple way to look at it is after we take complex histories on patients to try to figure out a way to see what they're getting that might be bad for their cell healing cycle or what they need to get as a nutrient to help um, move that cycle forward. So in a nutshell, that's the constellation of what we'll be talking about in Sydney. So the cell danger response, is that equivalent to sickness syndrome where, you know, you get inflamed interleukin 1B, you know, you get the feelings of a cold, you want to retreat, you just want to rest, you want to darken room, you want to shy away, you don't want to be partying all night. Is that the same? Yeah, I would think of it as the cell danger response leads you to do all those things that you mentioned. Yes, exactly. Dr. Navio, can you 
tell us a little bit about the background of this man and also can you tell us a little bit about what his research has found? So he is one of these amazing people who is extraordinarily brilliant and yet the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. Um, He has uh, a number of clinical appointments at the University of California in San Diego and is widely recognized as a wonderful geneticist, specifically with metabolic genetics, which has to do with various enzyme deficiencies and metabolic problems that lead people to express certain genetic syndromes. He also is a foremost clinician and researcher in the area of mitochondrial research. And I visited his lab, and he has done a lot of elegant work on, um, for example, the earthworm to help him elucidate some of uh, the work um, related to mitochondrial function and um, the things that he can find out about how mitochondria adapt to environmental changes. So one of the things I uh, love about Bob is that he can take something that's incredibly complex and use amazing analogies um, so that it becomes very easy to understand. So he has uh, gotten sucked into the autism vortex also and has been attending the Autism Research Institute think tanks for a number of years. And he has uh, done a pilot study that has shown um, significant reversal of so-called autistic type symptoms with a drug called Suramin, which um, is an old medication that was used for African sleeping sickness. And he repurposed it in these children with autism because he recognized that it worked on these very fundamental uh, what are called uh, purogenic signaling systems and very fundamentally affected the cell danger response. So again, this is going very much upstream and trying to treat the root cause of um, these children's problems and not just, you know, give Risperdal because their behavior is bad and give another medication to help them sleep at night and another medication to help them not hit the teachers. It's, it's, so elegant to try to go back to the um, to the root causes. So that work is going to expand into uh, phase two and phase three trials. Um, it's a long and frustrating process for the parents of the world who have children with autism because research done well that's going to lead to you know widespread adaptation of whatever the therapy might be, you know, first you have to prove that it's safe. Then you have to prove that it's effective. Then you have to do it in a bigger crowd so that you can try to detect potential side effects that weren't seen initially. And it can be a multi-year process, but I have every faith in him that um, he's going to continue to pursue this work. And I can't wait to read the next paper. Yeah. So, Suramin, how so it works on purogenic, did you say, as in purines? Yeah, purines and pyrimidines, which um, are basically 
part of uh, cell signaling. And um, Bob uh, will do a beautiful job of explaining this in uh, the lectures that he gives. Hmm. Um, but uh, that type of signaling is very fundamental to any kind of neurologic function. And so being able to work on that signaling pathway is um, just a wonderful way to get down to root cause. So you were mentioning the healing cycle and that you might be able to intercede to help these kids with neurodevelopmental disorders. What is the healing cycle and what are the hallmark disorders seen here? So um, basically, the stages of healing are driven by bioenergetics. So it's not just biochemistry, but it also has to do with energy and light and a lot of um, probably things we don't fully understand now. Um, When you're working on a car, you know, you might kind of use an engineering model to sort of just figure out what's wrong and uh, replace the part. But uh, with humans and animals, um, we have to look at systems biology, which means there are lots of different metabolic differences, hundreds of gene mutations, and hundreds of measurable analytes that are related to various types of chronic disease. Mm. So basically, you know, nature goes through this healing cycle and goes through kind of a reboot of the various um, pathways and then attempts to reintegrate the cell and reestablish function. So when Dr. Navio lectures, he'll talk about uh, the cellular defense response, one going to two, one and going to three as different parts of the healing cycle. So um, we ought to rethink about a state of chronic illness, and instead of just thinking of it as um, illness, if we could think of it as vigorous health not being restored, then we can um, put a positive spin on it, and there are possibly a relatively small number of interventions in that healing cycle or Uh, nutritional support or biochemical cofactors that we could give that might really impact, uh, and I hesitate to use the word cure, but I think cure is on the horizon, hundreds of diseases. So rather than having hundreds of solutions, we may be able to, through this careful analysis of these um, analytes, look at um, what they need to move forward. So Cells are always in different states of function, and with chronic illness, it's sort of self-sustaining. It's like a vicious cycle, and we talk about wanting to turn the vicious cycle into more of a a victorious cycle. Nice. So healing can be self-sustaining if it's just not blocked. So part of this is getting rid of the roadblocks. But there's got to be a stage where the mitochondria become so dysfunctional that your body just says, you know what, you're you're too oxidized, you're too damaged, we're going to tear you down and and start again. Is this where where the cell danger response can cause both fatigue and hyperexcitability, like depending on what's happening with the mitochondria? So you're talking about a process of essentially cellular suicide. 
um, which is an important adaptive response. So you're exactly right. At some point when the cell is damaged beyond repair, what it wants to do for the good of the rest of the body and its neighboring cells is to commit suicide. And there are a number of uh, triggers or messages that give the mitochondria that signal that it's time for them to sacrifice themselves for the greater good. So um, the interesting thing about that is that we now know that there are a number of ways that we can increase what's called mitochondrial biogenesis, meaning helping you make new mitochondria. Mm -hmm. So I'll mention just a couple of those. One that's getting some uh, interest lately is the idea of intermittent fasting because mitochondria like periods where they aren't having to process food 24-7. And unfortunately, in America, we have, you know, very bad eating habits where we have 24-7 access to food and people, you know, if they can't sleep or getting up in the middle of the night and making themselves snacks. But yeah. We know that the mitochondria really like these periods of fasting. The other thing they really like is exercise. And so when you do vigorous exercise, you help generate something called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, Mm -hmm. and you give your mitochondria a boost also. Then there are other things that help you build new mitochondria, um, like hyperbaric oxygen therapy, where you're giving um, concentrated uh, oxygen under pressure that diffuses into the plasma. So you can actually get to places in the body with the plasma, which can diffuse uh, pretty much everywhere, as opposed to only depending on your red blood cells, which aren't going to be able to deliver oxygen if there's um, uh, blockages like strokes or plaques, uh, for example. So um, self-suicide and then making new mitochondria is a big piece of this. So you're exactly right that mitochondrial dysfunction is highly implicated in things like chronic fatigue syndrome, but also in certain hyper-agitated states, especially those having to do with the imbalance between glutamate and GABA. So Briefly, uh, glutamate and GABA should be in kind of a balance in our brain. Mm -hmm. But if you get high glutamate, um, you tend to be um, agitated or hyperactive. You need a certain amount of glutamate to be able to be awake enough and alert enough to be able to think well. But when you get too much, like in someone who's uh, drinking a lot of diet sodas with aspartame in them or other uh, MSG products that make too much glutamate, then you'll have that hyperexcitability. And then GABA um, is an amino acid that should be affecting you in a calming way. So this GABA and glutamate balance is something that's going to promote good mitochondrial function um, in the organism. Okay, so you've got two phases here of the mitochondria, one where you can heal it, one where your body's going to tear it down, start again, create an apoptotic or autophagy situation, autophagic situation. So how do you as a clinician know where you're headed here? Do you just do the general 
things of exercise and intermittent fasting and good rest and avoiding the high glucose type food so that you're not getting a hyper excitability and let the body manage that? Or do you have a phase sort of thing where you say, listen, your symptoms are more indicative of your um, mitochondria being able to be repaired? So we'll go that way. Or your symptoms are more indicative of your of an apoptotic situation being um, imminent, imminent. So we need to look after you in a different way. I, I know that's a very general question because there's thousands of mitochondria in each cell. But you like, do you tend to sort of do a biphasic treatment response here, or or just general guidelines? So what I tend to do is first to always go back to the history of the patient. And so if I hear symptoms that suggest mitochondrial dysfunction. In babies, it might be that they're very floppy and they aren't making their developmental milestones. Yep. In um, uh, adults, it might be chronic fatigue or um, uh, just not having energy to work the way they might have worked earlier. So the first piece of it is to figure out if there is indeed mitochondrial dysfunction, which you can do through lab testing. And then try to figure out um, what it is that's blocking that function and take it away if you can or treat it if you can. So, for example, um, chronic tick-borne diseases might ultimately lead to mitochondrial dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Um, Profound nutritional deficiencies might ultimately lead to mitochondrial dysfunction. Various bad infections might lead to mitochondrial dysfunction. Uh, traumatic situations or experiences might have a bad impact on the mitochondria. So once you've identified that those are the symptoms, then I would go about providing, getting rid of whatever blocks you can, but also providing whatever support to the mitochondria that you might need to give. So for example, um, you might want to give certain nutrients. Um, famously, the B vitamins, particularly riboflavin and niacin, are important for the mitochondria to use as part of the process where it goes from complex one to complex five and get the process started. CoQ10, um, which you can get as a supplement, will help with complex three action in the mitochondria and again, move it forward. Um, Oxygen and vitamin C are both needed for the mitochondria, so you can look at ways to oxygenate or hyperoxygenate the cells and ensure adequate doses of vitamin C. Um, With regards to sort of throwing up our hands and saying, you know, your mitochondria are dying, you know, we're just going to let that happen. I don't tend to do that. I feel like the body is the only one or the cell is the only one that really gets to pull the trigger on that apoptotic um, pathway. So our job is to give the body what it needs and honestly let it sort it out in terms of um, once uh, that, um, that process has gone on too long, um, it can decide which uh, cells to destroy. Yeah. Mitochondria can benefit from a stressful stimulus as long as it's short term to sort of kickstart them um, back into normality. Um, So as long as you give that short term rather than chronic, I guess that the issue is you take, got to, you got to be mindful to take away the chronic stuff. (laughs) Yes. 
Yes. And a good example is people with chronic fatigue um, that really don't have much energy to exercise, but even just a few minutes of exercise or movement and a little bit of mitochondrial stressing um, is actually good in that situation. Um, another example is um, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which we know in and of itself is going to initially cause a little bit of oxidative stress, but then you awake some of the adaptive mechanisms and go on to get the benefit. So you're exactly right on that part, point. Okay. What are the main ways, though, in which our bodies normally cope with cell danger signals? And I guess you've discussed some ways in which we can intervene to address inadequate recovery, but when somebody's really failing, what do you need to do? How do you need to intercede? Okay. So um, when the body perceives itself uh, to be uh, under danger, one of the things the mitochondria do is um, shift the metabolism so that whatever the dangerous source is, like, for example, a virus or a bacteria, can't hijack uh, the cellular materials to for their own purposes. It also, and I think I mentioned this earlier, stiffens the cell membrane yeah. so that it limits access to uh, from the pathogen into the cell. It also sends out some antiviral and antibacterial chemicals all around the cell to try to protect um, the surrounding uh, cellular buddies, and it um, tries to um, alter gene expression in ways that will be protective uh, for the host. Uh, it warns neighboring cells that they're under danger, and then we've talked about how it uh, alters the behavior of the host to have more of a sick behavior to facilitate healing and not spread to other people. Now, when um, people haven't been recovering well, I like to look at very fundamental back-to-basics kinds of approaches. So when you look at a complex, his complex history, there's a number of areas of lifestyle medicine that you need to look at. One, obviously, is nutrition, good sleep, movement and exercise, fostering resilience in the patient, and being able to handle stress. So that gives us um, five pillars to work on no matter what the chronic condition is. So we would go first to nutrition. Um, we often start with uh, the diet. Um, people's eating habits are challenging to change, mm -hmm. but probably one of the most important things we can do. We know that if you track all-cause mortality from all kinds of diseases, the thing that really correlates with less risk is the number of servings of fruits and vegetables. So one way you can intervene in all chronic illness is to see if you can get your patient to do three green vegetables a day, three colored vegetables a day, and three sulfury vegetables like onions and fennel, which will help the detoxification uh, system. You mentioned, you know, avoiding sugar, avoiding preservatives, um, eating whole foods. There are a variety of diets that are specifically good for specific situations. For example, in someone that has a lot of gastrointestinal inflammation, 
you may um, want to use the specific carbohydrate diet because that's been shown to be very effective um, to heal gut inflammation. There may be other situations where you would do a gluten-free diet or a casein-free diet or um, an anti-inflammatory diet in which you avoid foods such as nightshades that um, will trigger autoimmunity and inflammation in some people. So food and nutrition is what I would characterize as the first pillar. The second thing you can do for pretty much any condition is to work on sleep. There's new research actually from my alma mater from the University of Virginia in the last two years that has shown us that we actually have a lymphatic system in our brain. It's called glymphatics. And for many years, we didn't know about Uh, this. But now we know that when we sleep, um, our brain cells actually shrink a little bit. And this um, fluid washes over them, and it essentially helps you take out the trash. Mm. So one of the problems with people that have PTSD or chronic fatigue or chronic pain syndromes is that their sleep is so disrupted that they can't do that taking out the trash every night. And that makes them more susceptible to, you know, getting stuck in one of those vicious cycles where they can't get rid of whatever toxin it is that's making them worse. So there are lots of strategies to promote sleep um, that clinicians can use to help with that. Exercise is another important thing. Um, We talked about the positive effect of exercise on the mitochondria and on cognitive function. It also is particularly good at helping you not feel depressed. So, you know, these things that I'm mentioning, like cognitive decline and depression and fatigue, these are all signs that our mitochondria aren't functioning appropriately and that we may be locked in a maladaptive phase of the cell healing cycle. So attention to uh, exercise or movement is important. And then stress management and cultivating resiliency are other ways where you can have a global effect Mm -hmm. on multiple different conditions. So, you know, for our children, we want to have them in a nurturing environment where they know that people love them and their basic needs are met but also that they feel safe and can share things emotionally. Um, For adults, we want them to develop, you know, various uh, stress management um, strategies that work for them, you know, meditation or exercise or um, confiding in a friend. Um, Whatever it is that works for them is going to, again, give the body some of what it needs in order to uh, get unlocked from uh, the block in the cell healing cycle. So those lifestyle pillars um, will work for everybody. And um, we just have to do a little work to fine-tune the different recommendations. Yeah. So just speaking about kids with neurodevelopmental issues, autism, ASD, ADHD, all that sort of thing, where a trigger whether it be a noise, whether it be an, uh, you know, a child bullying them, some trigger for them and they tend to explode. It's like it's an impulse. It's immediate. It's very forceful at times. How do you, do I say the word train? Um, how do you teach them 
to react in a different way once they've sort of, you know, the initial, call it primordial response would be to explode. But how do you train them to say, okay, we need to do this rather than, you know, hit back or lash out or throw chairs? Right. So one of the things you're addressing is the very fundamental state of the child. And many children in autism tend to be in what we would call sympathetic overdrive. That basically means that they live in sort of fight or flight mode most of the time. And there are a number of ways you can improve the parasympathetic response. So let me mention a couple of those. So uh, sympathetic is fight or flight or flee. Mm -hmm. Um, Parasympathetic is rest and digest. And we want them to spend more time resting and digesting and being able to cuddle on the sofa with their parents and be open to learning things. Mm -hmm. So um, parasympathetic tone is improved by any kind of deep pressure. So we will build into the child's day um, the parents giving them deep hugs. Some kids use weighted blankets or weighted vests. Um, Another thing that promotes parasympathetic tone is repetitive movement, like swinging or trampolining. And so many kids find that if they incorporate that into their day, they will be um, calmer. And um, the other thing that we work on is the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is the wandering nerve that goes through all parts of the body and uh, easy test to look for how well the vagus nerve uh, works is to have the child open their mouth and say, ah. And if the uvula, which is that little thing that um, hangs down the back of your throat in cartoons, um, deviates to the right or to the left, that's a quick and dirty sign that the vagus nerve is not working ah, well. okay. Um, yeah. Constipation is another very classic sign of vagal nerve dysfunction. So um, we can uh, use various types of allied health professionals like chiropractors to help us work on uh, the vagal nerve tone through their manipulations and massages and and such. Um, We know that massage is good at getting you into parasympathetic tone, but we also now know that it's good for mitochondrial biogenesis also. So um, a massage might put you into parasympathetic tone and also give you more mitochondria. So that's a good way to go. Yeah. So I would say the first thing is to, you know, address getting them into parasympathetic tone before you try to train them. It's very hard to train a kid not to have a rage attack when they're in the middle of having a rage attack. So we get them into parasympathetic tone and then we work on, giving them information like, you know, you can feel whatever it is you want to feel. Your feelings are legitimate, but we can't allow you to hurt yourself or other people. So we're going to work on ways to, you know, get out of that. Um, The other thing I wanted to mention about, you know, kids going off at the drop of a hat is what I perceive to be a very widespread deficiency in magnesium. Um, Magnesium should be in our vegetables, but we've over-fertilized the soil with phosphates and uh, potassium, which compete with magnesium. So in my area, um, Thomas Jefferson uh, had a home just a few miles from here, and he grew lots of vegetables that were very magnesium rich. Mm. Now, we don't have that much magnesium in our vegetables. So magnesium is uh, good for calming the neurologic system. 
So if you've got a chronic magnesium deficit, you're likely to have things like ticks or twitches or anxiety, but you're also likely to be quick to anger and to have uh, less ability to dampen down uh, those feelings of rage. So we tend to push magnesium doses um, for various reasons, um, but to help with um, calming the child overall and helping them to gate their sensory stimuli. So, yep. for example, magnesium is one of the things that helps you um, not continue um, to find it uh, unpleasant to hear like a fire truck. So, normally you hear a fire fire, fire siren and at first it kind of startles you, but as soon as you recognize where it is and where it's coming from and what it is and that, you know, you can pull over, you know, you shouldn't continue to be upset by that because you're, the sensory stimuli is being gated or managed. So magnesium really helps with the kids where, as you say, you know, a sudden loud noise um, or somebody scaring them yeah. might uh, put them into fight or flight. There's also uh, a little bit of a SNP, a single nucleotide polymorphism called COMPT, catecholamine O-methyltransferase. Um, it's an enzyme that has an important function in helping us break down epinephrine and norepinephrine, which are the messages of danger, danger, you know, something bad's happening mm -hmm. and it makes your heart rate go up and it makes your pupils dilate and it makes you ready to either run or fight. So um, in people that have that particular genetic variation, they are um, not going to break down those excitatory neurotransmitters as fast as other people would. In fact, uh, it may last as long as four times as long. So, you know, if we get startled, we might realize who's coming and only be scared for three to five seconds. But you know, kids with that problem, they, you know, stay agitated for much longer. Yeah. So methylation support, that sort of thing as well? Exactly. Yep. We work a lot on methylation and folate biochemistry because it's very fundamental for so many downstream body functions. It um, is fundamentally one of the ways that we regulate our gene expression and we learn to you know, make new cells when it's appropriate and, uh, but not make new cells when it's not appropriate, like cancer cells, if you have cancer. Um, it also is very important for us to generate normal cell membranes and normal neurotransmitters. And it serves as a gateway to our detoxification pathways, our repair of our gastrointestinal tract, our immune system, as well as our mitochondrial system. So when we do methylation support, we're actually also doing mitochondrial support. Yeah, yeah. And that's a big part of the picture. And do you tend to use different forms of magnesium um, because you, you know, you, you haven't just got the muscle relaxing properties. So the, you know, the favorite forms amongst practitioners are the, you know, bisglycinates, the aspartates, that sort of thing. However, you can use the oxides to ease constipation. So in decent, when, once you've got decent doses up, do you tend to use different forms of magnesium when you're helping these kids raise their magnesium levels? Yes, I do. If I've got uh, kids who are constipated, um, we tend to use uh, magnesium citrate more than you do in Australia, but I know in Australia you use magnesium oxides for that, which yeah. is perfectly good. 
Um, if he's got a child that has chronic diarrhea, we would look at more GI neutral forms. Those would include things like magnesium torate or magnesium glycinate. Um, and if it's a child that really has the sort of CNS aspects of magnesium deficiency, like extreme uh, anxiety, agitation, ticks and twitches, um, sometimes we use uh, magnesium l 3 um, or magnesium malate, which um, theoretically are uh, better at helping you with those CNS aspects of magnesium deficiency. So yeah. it's part of the art and science of medicine working together to make those small changes. Yeah. Um, and you were talking earlier about, you know, the cells releasing chemicals to protect itself. One of those chemicals is histamine in the brain, but it's got a, a counterintuitive action in the brain. So, you know, the, uh, the cell danger response has been termed the allergy of the brain. And, you know, I would there say, well, why not give an antihistamine? Right. So um, the, the histamine issue is very interesting because this is something that uh, should be protective for us. But when it goes to extreme, you end up with rashes and hives and um, sometimes behavioral effects, uh, even from certain high histamine uh, types of foods. So when we talk about allergy in the brain, um, that is, to me, uh, not a simple allergy like, um, you know, I'm allergic to, let's say, a bee sting. So if I get hit uh, or bitten by a bee, um, I'm going to swell up and get red and maybe have trouble breathing. It's really more of a global uh, immune dysregulation. So some of the things we look at in the kids who have either histamine intolerance or there's even something called mast cell activation mm. syndrome, it can be pretty much over the body. And so in the GI tract, they might have diarrhea and nausea, or they might get an itchy throat or throat swelling. Um, in their respiratory tract, they might wheeze. Um, in the cardiovascular system, they might be dizzy or have a tachycardia, which is rapid heart rate. Neurologically, as you're alluding to, it can uh, present with headaches and poor memory and anxiety. And, um, and on the skin, you know, sometimes we see what's called dermatographism, where you write on the skin or the actual hives, which is when the uh, histamine is really being released. Quercetin is very valuable in helping to heal an inflamed brain. It is sometimes uh, combined with rutin and uh, luteolin uh, for major healing effects. One of the researchers that worked on this is Dr. Theo C. Herides. Um, he works in Boston and has done an incredible amount of work in mast cell activation syndrome. We also look at uh, good fats for the brain, things like omega-3 essential fatty acids, which help with cell signaling and help make cell membranes very fluid. Phosphatidylcholine and phosphatidylserine are also good at helping with cell membrane function. You essentially want to have very fluid and uh, adaptable cell membranes. You don't want them to have uh, very stiff borders. This makes it harder for various uh, ions or medications or hormones 
to exert a cellular effect mm -hmm. if they don't have a nice fluid membrane. Uh, the very stiff membranes uh, or the wrinkled membranes uh, it would be like trying to dock a spaceship to a docking station that didn't have the right shape or conformation. So lots can be done uh, on brain healing, and I think that this is an area of research that will continue to march forward very rapidly. Can you comment on the pharmacological approach of symptom control versus the nutritional and lifestyle interventions that you've mentioned? Like, um, do you need medications sometime or can you really get away from them? I am a traditionally trained doctor and I do think you need medications sometimes. However, I do think that the way we have put all our eggs in the basket of pharmacology has not been good for our patients. So, for example, I do a lot of work with parents who bring their children to me because they have trouble in school with so-called ADHD, attention deficit problems. We like to take a very big history about their diet and nutrition, their exercise patterns, their home situation, their sleep patterns, and work on those pillars first. Unfortunately, at least in the United States, the model is that to be a thriving uh, pediatrician and get reimbursement from insurance companies, uh, you schedule your patients every 15 minutes, yeah. and it's very difficult to do the kind of work I like to do in that context. So many people will go to a pediatrician, maybe with some questionnaires from their teachers or complaints from the parents. And if the child meets the so-called criteria for ADHD, um, they will walk away with a prescription for a stimulant. Um, I do not like to do things that way. And we have actually had many kids who changed their diet, you know, got rid of Pop-Tarts for breakfast and um, potato chips for dinner and started actually eating whole foods like fruits and vegetables and good proteins and good uh, fats and actually giving their brain the kind of fuel it needs in order to be able to think. Um, one simple thing is that many kids are zinc deficient. Zinc is found in things like oysters and mussels and certain seeds. And most toddlers um, and young children are not going to really eat those foods. So when you're deficient in zinc, you have trouble thinking. So sometimes just supplementing zinc is helpful. Um, sometimes omega-3s can be very helpful for ADHD. So I'm glad you asked me about this because Nancy O'Hara is going to spend a whole hour talking about this at the um, conference that we're giving in late March in Sydney. Yeah. And um, she's got a, a much longer list than what I just presented about how we can do things without medications in certain situations. Brilliant. Um, I think that... Medications are great, and traditional medicine is great when you're doing an acute rescue of someone, um, but not necessarily so good a track record when we're dealing with chronic disease. Um, if you look, for example, critically at the uh, drugs that are commonly prescribed for conditions like arthritis, um, we realize that they really don't help that much long-term. Same has been demonstrated for 
cognitive decline in situations like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. You know, those medications have really not worked well despite all the millions and billions of dollars we've spent on them. So I think this idea of restoring the healing cycle, giving the body what it needs in order to heal, and taking away the stuff that's interfering and blocking that healing cycle is the wave of the future. What oh, other top yeah, what other topics and diseases will you and Nancy O'Hara and Robert Navio be discussing at the Mind Forum in April twenty nineteen? Well, one of the things I'm excited to talk about is migraine headaches in children. Um, ah. in the past we've looked at a number of medications to treat, but we know now that depending on the ages and stages of the child that there are different types of presentations for migraine and certain um, kids will actually present with more abdominal symptoms than headache symptoms. And so if we can identify hmm. um, what the triggers are and then uh, use some uh, strategies to figure out how to prevent them from coming back, that's going to be more effective um, than uh, just you know waiting for a migraine to happen and then trying to give a medication that's going to abort it. And I've got an interesting case uh, to present uh, about a very, what seems like unusual cause of migraines, which was a young woman in her teens that um, had uh, extremely large breasts with a bra cup size of a J. Ooh. And the thing that cured her migraines was breast reduction surgery. Yeah. So yeah. it just makes me realize, again, how multiple conditions can contribute to um, a, a certain, quote, disease or condition, but if you go upstream and deal with the cause, then um, it makes a big difference. Another thing I'm going to be talking about is uh, cerebral folate deficiency. Um, we know now that many children who have neurodevelopmental problems uh, have autoantibodies against either their folate receptors, either binding or blocking antibodies. And um, folate is crucially important for brain function. Typically what happens is that we eat folate in the form of dark leafy green vegetables. We have an enzyme that's supposed to convert that into the active form that can go into the methylation cycle and then be ultimately used by the brain and the neurologic system. But some people have an impairment in that enzyme or they have these uh, blocking or binding antibodies. And if you have cerebral folate deficiency, it can present relatively subtly in infancy with just some developmental delays. But as the child ages up, it becomes more and more severe and can mm. lead to horrible seizures and mental retardation. So recognizing it early and just providing, you know, sometimes a relatively small amount of the active form of folate can be life-saving for that brain. We're also going to talk about allergies, things like allergic rhinitis and asthma and eczema. And rather than just giving the medication for each of those things, we'll talk about underlying uh, conditions and causes, how to remove the environmental triggers, and that should be great. And then Nancy's talking about um, PANDAS, which is Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric uh, Syndrome Associated with Strep. And there's also PANS, which is Pediatric 
acute neuropsychiatric syndrome. Those are both conditions in which the child's behavior is uh, dramatically changed, often very quickly, uh, as a result of certain infections. So Mm -hmm. the typical story is, I put my child to bed last night and she seemed fine. And then she woke up this morning and she had acute separation anxiety and she became very OCD and this is totally unlike her. So we'll talk about that emerging research and what we can do to help the kids. Nancy's also going to talk about um, some of the things you've been mentioning in terms of chronic infections. And Bob Navia is going to share some of his excellent work on chronic fatigue syndrome and how that all ties in with his work with cell danger response and the healing cycle. And then Nancy's going to talk about Lyme disease. She practices in Connecticut, which is where Lyme disease Mm. was um, originally worked on. And you guys now have it in Australia. And so... um, That'll be very interesting. So we're so excited to come back. First of all, we all love Australia. But secondly, we find that your clinicians are so bright and so dedicated to their patients and that they're willing to go the extra mile. And so we always learn a lot from the clinicians in Australia when we're brought in as a so-called expert. So can't wait and very excited. And... um I hope a lot of people come to take advantage of the opportunity. Absolutely. And indeed, I will urge all clinicians that can make the Mind Forum. It is a beautiful foundation um, set up up by Leslie Embersitz, who has the utmost dedication and care um, for kids with neurodevelopmental um, issues. And I've got to say, Liz, that... Thank you for the accolades to our practitioners, but you know what? It's because of the care and compassion of you and your colleagues um, that we're able to springboard from that, from what we learned from you. So thank you so much for taking us through. I mean, this is really the tip of the iceberg that we've touched on here. We didn't have enough time to go into anything, which doesn't really give it... um, any, any credibility. Um, so you really have to dive deep by attending the Mind Forum in 2019. And Liz, I'd love to thank you for sharing your expertise and passion and compassion um, for these kids and the support of their families today on FX Medicine. And I will tell you that I've learned so much from the families of these children. They're the ones that notice so many things about their children's symptoms that went on to drive research. So if a clinician listens to the family, we learn a lot from them also. So this work has been very inspiring to me because I see how dedicated these families are and it makes all of us just want to help in any way we can. Well said. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast was brought to you by the Mind Foundation. That's M-I-N-D-D who help practitioners and patients discover and implement effective treatments for metabolic, immunologic, neurologic, digestive and developmental conditions, which often affect the mind.